This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Today's podcast guest is Sonny Ledford, a Bird Clan Cherokee of the Eastern Band in North Carolina. Sonny is a cultural ambassador, a lecturer, a woodcarver, an artisan and a warrior of Anikadua. So the warriors of Anikadua, and hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, um, are a group of guys um, who tour the U.S. and beyond performing traditional Cherokee dances and songs. That intro song you heard was one of theirs, and I put two other examples throughout the podcast when Sonny is telling stories. He tells an incredible story about connecting to ancestors, which is definitely a theme that's been coming up on this podcast and one that I find personally very interesting. Um, The idea of family ghosts and things like that and um, feeling connection to our ancient past coming up um, in somebody, especially through doing, um, you know, a, a time, especially doing something cultural that connects back. So I put one song there and I put another one of their songs when Sonny tells a story about the deer woman. So if any of you have really been enjoying any of the paranormally stuff on this podcast, you'll want to stick around for that one. So today's episode is pretty incredible. Um, is while Sonny is, um, very commanding and very austere and, um, very, um, captivating. And it's also very hypnotic. Like I really felt like I could see so much of what he described. I could um, feel the years dissolving and and feel as though it's going in the past. So we recorded this episode um, on my Asheville, North Carolina trip. This was the second day. So after the first episode, which was with Jim McDowell, who is the African-American outsider artist and potter, The next day was with Sonny in Cherokee, North Carolina. As you descend the mountains, um, you know, the Smoky Mountains, these towering, quite enormous, green, lush, incredible mountains, as you descend them, uh, you enter the Cherokee, the Eastern, the Cherokee Reservation of the Eastern Band. And it's not technically a reservation, it's 
considered actually the koala boundary. Um, we don't get too much into that with this podcast, but it was interesting to know it's not actually a reservation. You know, after I do these podcasts, I need hours of alone time and silence to kind of take in the the plethora of information that has just been told to me. And often there's a lot of, you know, emotional intensity will come through. So it takes me hours to kind of distill everything that has just been said. While I had gone to the Museum of the Cherokee Indian before our podcast, afterwards, as I was kind of decompressing and distilling all the information that Sunny had told me, I went to check out the Onokolufti Indian Village. Don't know how to pronounce that. Um, that's a living history village where you can kind of see perhaps a slice of what life would have been like 200 250, 300 years ago. And there's a beautiful uh, medicine trail where you can walk by, you know, all these beautiful trees, birch, um, rhododendron, and it kind of tells you what the Cherokee, how they use this medicine. So heading out of the koala boundary, going back up the one road out of it, um, there's a waterfall on the side of the road and many people uh, were stopping their cars to get off of the main road descend a little slope into the woods that has like a hand line because it's kind of slick and a magnificent waterfall. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of people around checking it out, but I took a seat there and I kind of had a moment um, reflecting, staring into this waterfall and two thoughts came to me. The first being that the Cherokee lived in heaven on earth. And of course, as you'll hear in this podcast, this is the, their ancestral land. And some of the Cherokee were able to stay there while many others through the Trail of Tears were pushed away. What I mean is I, could, I had a sense of perhaps what it was like when it was pristine, before modernity, before gift shops, that were, you know, down in the main reservation or um, in the closest town, Maggie Valley, that's all filled with kind of almost like beach-like gift shops. Like when this place was in its pristine, magnificent form, this must have been heaven on earth. That was my feeling, that it was almost like Eden, just the magnificence of the mountains, the enormous amount of biodiversity, the lushness and the color, the rhododendron, and all of this I'm thinking of, you know, the huge amount of wild game, the bear, the deer, the turkey, and all of this I'm thinking as I'm looking at this waterfall. And I kind of notice, as you can notice in front of any waterfall, these the streaks of white, the, the foam, the foaming water as it's falling. And, you know, it has these white streaks. And I felt as corny as this might sound, and I hope I'm not embarrassing Sonny by saying this, but while watching the waterfall, seeing these white streaks rushing in front of it, the falling water, I just had this feeling of tears and the falling of tears. And I felt really a, a quite a bit of sorrow. And, you know, I kind of walked by myself. There's only one other person down there at this point. I walked down the creek and I just 
had a moment to kind of weep for this feeling of what felt like the sorrow of the Cherokee people. And uh, I don't know, that seems pretty, seems a little corny to say out loud, but in the moment, there really was something to it. So there are two more on the Asheville trip after this one. We will be going and speaking with Rebecca from Blood and Spice Bush next. I'm assuming if you are an herbalist or a forager and you use Instagram, then you may already be following Blood and Spice Bush. That is a really fun conversation that gets into some bizarre paranormal story, lots of uh, folklore, history, and folk magic. Just a really fun conversation. And then the final podcast on this little Asheville stay was with the woman whose farm I was camping for my stay, where I camped for three nights. And that lady, Lori, tells some incredible stories for you to look forward to about reincarnation and her visions of her past lives, which she tells in brutal and extreme detail. And that is, that was like paradigm shifting conversation for me. Now, this is kind of a whimsical, fantastical thought that I didn't think I would share because it's not the most politically correct thought in the world. But I think it's okay because Sonny described so much of what it would have been like to be in a Cherokee raid if you were on the opposite side of that as, say, an, an, an English soldier, what it would have been like to be have the Cherokee descending upon you. And so for the two more nights that I was camping on Lori's property, which she has had... Um, intuitions was an area where the Cherokee grew their medicine. Um, so there I am camping on the edge of her field in a tulip poplar grove um, along a creek, only inches from the tent was a creek and, you know, surrounded by um, poison ivy and um, may apple. And out in her field at night, it was just completely illuminated by the Smoky Mountain fireflies. And I had the thought for those two nights after speaking with Sonny, which was this, if I am in the land of the Cherokee and I was sleeping in the ancestral land of the Cherokee, if this were 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, and I was an Englishman or a Frenchman or a Belgian sleeping by myself in that exact spot, would I be in mortal danger? Would I escape alive? Maybe I'd be captured by the Cherokee and become friends with them. Who knows? Now, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone on my new Patreon account who is helping out financially with this podcast. It means so much and it really is going a long way because between gas to do these trips and hosting the podcast and adding sound effects, it all adds up quick. So I really appreciate everybody listening and I really appreciate the support. So for those of you who are at the top tier on, on the uh, Patreon, which is um, patreon.com forward slash Our Nature. So thank you to Jess Paget, 
Rachel Hackshaw, Ann Stanley of Pyramid, Diana Gonzalez, Franklin Renshaw, James Mann, Michelle Alderson, Ryan Goeckner, Tyler Lively, and Waterlight. So if you are passing through Asheville, definitely check out the Museum of the Cherokee Indian. You can also check out their YouTube channel where you can see Sonny and the rest of his Warriors of Anikadua. You can see some of their performances or excerpts of their performances. It was truly an honor to do a podcast about the Eastern Band of the Cherokee and to have such a powerful speaker, Sonny, to be the guest for it. To make an excellent episode even better, I wanted to start this episode with a Cherokee origin story. For that, I found The Cherokee Nation, A History by Robert J. Conley, who is a Cherokee author. And in his first uh, chapter, which is called Theories and Legends, he includes an origin tale that was collected by James Mooney in North Carolina between 1887 and 1890, which was published by the Bureau of American Ethnology in 1900. The title is How the World Was Made. The earth is a great island floating in a sea of water, suspended at each of the four cardinal points by a cord hanging down from the sky vault, which is of solid rock. When the world grows old and worn out, the people will die and the cords will break and let the earth sink down into the ocean and all will be water again. The Indians are afraid of this. When all was water, the animals were above in Galenlati, beyond the arch, but it was very much crowded and they were wanting more room. They wondered what was below the water and at last Dayuni Si, Beaver's grandchild, the little water beetle, offered to go and see if it could learn. It darted in every direction over the surface of the water, but could find no firm place to rest. Then it dived to the bottom and came up with some soft mud, which began to grow and spread on every side until it became the island which we call the earth. It was afterward fastened to the sky with four cords, but no one remembers who did this. At first, the earth was flat and very soft and wet. The animals were anxious to get down and sent out different birds to see if it was yet dry. But they found no place to alight and came back again to Galenlati. At last, it seemed to be time, and they sent out the buzzard and told him to go and make ready for them. This was the great buzzard, the father of all buzzards we see now. He flew all over the earth, low down near the ground, and it was still soft. When he reached the Cherokee country, he was very tired, and his wings began to flap and strike the ground, and wherever they struck the earth, there was a valley, and where they turned up again, there was a mountain. When the animals above saw this, they were afraid that the whole world would be mountains, so they called him back, but the Cherokee country remains full of mountains to this day. When the earth was dry and the animals came down, it was still dark. So they got the sun and set it in a track to go every day across the island from east to west, just overhead. It was too hot this way, and Taziska Gili, the red crawfish, had his shell scorched a bright red so that his meat was spoiled, and the Cherokees do not eat it. The conjurers put up the sun another hand breadth higher in the air, but it was still too hot. 
They raised it another time, and another, until it was seven handbreadths high and just under the sky arch. Then it was right, and they left it so. This is why the conjurers call the highest place the seventh height, because it is seven handbreadths above the earth. Every day the sun goes along this arch and returns at night on the upper side to the starting place. There is another world under this, and it is like ours in everything, animals, plants, and people, save that the seasons are different. The streams that come down from the mountains are the trails by which we reach this underworld, and the springs at their heads are the doorways by which we enter it. But to do this, one must fast and go to water and have one of the underground people for a guide. We know that the seasons in the underworld are different from ours because the water in the springs is always warmer in winter and cooler in summer than the outer air. When the animals and plants were first made, we do not know by whom, they were told to watch and keep awake for seven nights, just as young men now fast and keep awake when they pray to their medicine. They tried to do this, and nearly all were awake through the first night, but the next night several dropped off to sleep, and the third night others were asleep, and then others, until on the seventh night, of all the animals only the owl, the panther, and one or two more were still awake. To these were given the power to see and to go about in the dark, and to make prey of the birds and animals which must sleep at night. Of the trees only the cedar the pine, the spruce, the holly, and the laurel were awake to the end, and to them it was given to be always green and to be greatest for medicine. But to the others it was said, Because you have not endured to the end, you shall lose your hair every winter. Men came after the animals and plants. At first there were only a brother and sister until he struck her with a fish and told her to multiply, and so it was. In seven days a child was born to her, and thereafter every seven days another, and they increased very fast until there was danger that the world could not keep them. Then it was made that a woman should have only one child in a year, and it has been so ever since. Cherokee, North Carolina. Uh, most people uh, that come to visit here know it as the Cherokee Indian Reservation. A lot of the local people that live here, we call it the Koala Boundary uh, because it's not really a reservation. But uh, most of the enrolled members of the Eastern Band live here on the Koala Boundary. So why is it not quite a reservation? What is the distinction? Well, it's it's a pretty long okay. uh, story to kind of okay. get to all the uh, information okay. about why it turned to Koala Boundary because there's so many stories of how the Eastern Band uh, came to be in North Carolina. A lot of people think that, you know, we were all removed to Oklahoma and then some walked back, but that's not the truth. Um we're descendants of those that, from my understandings through oral traditions passed down, that our warriors fought with the soldiers so that we could live where we're at. The, on your ancestral grounds? Yes. 
My hair's just it up. Yeah, and that's the thing that society doesn't know is because they believe what they read, and it's always a one-sided story. They never hear our side of it. We've got people that were there at these battles when removal started. I mean, my grandfather, he's seen everything was going on that was, you know, happening in the, the battles between the different, you know, different nationalities that came here when the power struggles were going on and all this forming of the governments wanting us out of this land for greed. Yeah. So I camped out at um, about 45 minutes from here. I camped last night on some lady's property in a field. I camped in the woods amongst may apple and poison ivy and uh, on a little creek, listening to the creek all night long. And I was so excited about today's conversation that I barely slept. But I have a book. I know you're saying not everything is in the books, of course, but That's I have right. a, a really good book that has amazing pictures. And um, just catching up on the little I know of the Cherokee, seeing where the good majority were forced through the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma to see the difference between what the the prairie so people who are from these enormous green smoky wooded mountains to be forced to a prairie it's just like i was just thinking that the like uh the psychological devastation of of being moved to a place that is not your place yeah i mean You know, I, I tell a lot of people where I do my lectures at the Cherokee Bonfire that I wish that people that are interested in the real history of this country could live and see through our eyes today. The traumas that happened back then, we still feel those because we have family members that was on that trail. The books kind of give you a sugar-coated version of what really happened on that trail and the the atrocities that were done to the Cherokees and other tribes that were forced on that same trail. And to be taken from a place that we knew our creator put us here. Mm. We don't call it a God. We say, when I'm praying by myself, I say, that means my creator. If I'm doing ceremony with other people that believe like I do, then I say, that means our creator. Because in our way of life, everything was equal. We believed we were put here as a people with animals and the trees and the water and everything was put here at the same time. So nothing was above the other. So we looked at animals, we learned from them and things like that. And to be taken from that, mm. all the animals we know and, and you hear stories of how they the animals talk to us. Yes, they do, but they don't speak a language that we hear. They speak their own language, and we understand that. Mm. So being taken from that to a place that is flat, can't grow any vegetables or have like we still do today when we go out here in nature and we get creasy greens, water crease, you know, and ramps and all these other wishy, slicks, milky mushrooms that we still go gather to eat. And enjoy it. Being taken away from that all your life, that's all you've known. 
you know, when, when, when 1838, when they were actually taking our people out of their homes, because some of our Cherokee, we uh, began to live like settlers, the European lifestyle. So even though we were intermingling with the Europeans because of the towns popping up everywhere, the soldiers still came into the homes. They might be sitting down to a meal. And this is in the midwinter. And they would take the people out of the house, even the kids and the elders. They didn't have time to grab blankets or nothing. They grabbed them and they took them all and gathered them and, and put them in stockades. A lot of them froze to death. You know, some of them got disease and died that way. Starvation. You know, and to think, you know, how they would felt. I mean, today we get a little bit of something happening like that being removed from your home for whatever reason, and they get a little bit of that feeling, mm. how much it affects them. Mm. It might affect them a week. It might affect them a month because they were either removed from their house because of rent or something like that. You see how people get mm. affected by that. Can you imagine being forced by rifle, by gun, out of your house and being just slung everywhere, left and right, pushing you out of your house and watching your grandma be done the same way. We see that. Even though it didn't happen to us physically, we feel that hurt. Mm. So being moved to a place that you have no idea where you are mm. and you have to adapt to it, which we have. That's why we have the United Gadua Band in Tahlequah, and then we have the Cherokee Nation scattered in Oklahoma, parts of Oklahoma. So some of our people decided to stay out there. I mean, very few came back, but we did have some that came back to the Koala Boundary. Really? Yeah. Now, what are the stories of the people who were able to stay here? Did they hide? You said they fought. Like, how, like, um, yeah. how were they? I mean, is it just back here? So... Like, it would be actually great if you could explain this landscape because people listen to this podcast all over America and maybe, yeah. maybe even in other countries. Yeah. Like, this is an epic landscape. Deep valleys, huge yeah. mountains. Could you describe the landscape a little bit and then we'll get back to how the, the people of the Eastern Band stayed here? Well, now in my travels, I've traveled the United States and up to Canada, places like that. And there are some beautiful places, even people that come to the Koala Boundary. They don't want to leave when it's time for them to go back home. But, you know, when I was young, I was able to run the mountains with my brothers. I had five older brothers and seven older sisters. So whenever our parents told us to go play, everybody went out the doors and up in the mountains, playing. But when I was able to travel, you know, my dad, would take us to different states and show us areas that were really sacred. The valleys, the big lakes, some of the most beautiful waterfalls and streams. You know, still yet today, the water in these areas is just about the best water you could ever drink. But the villages were not built before Europeans. They weren't built in mountains. See, now a lot of the enrolled members here in Cherokee live up in the mountains, but back in the old days, they lived by large lakes and large rivers because we were farmers. 
But the places I've been to and, and some of the village sites and areas where hasn't hardly been touched by human in society today, most, some of the most beautiful areas you'll ever see, the flowers and the rhododendrons and all these others. Now, in the springtime when they're blooming, all these different flowers. and It's hard to explain what it looks like unless you see a picture of it or you actually come to visit and look around. It isn't just the area of the Kuala Boundary where we live. You can go around surrounding areas in other states that we actually lived before Europeans and see the scenery that we enjoyed for, as our elders say, forever, since the beginning of our people. You know, we believe that water is life. That's why, you know, the issues of water and contamination, we really have, like, uprisings about it because if we don't have clean water... We and we can't drink the water anymore. We don't exist anymore. But the trees, you know, they, they supply the cleaning of the air. Some trees we use for medicines to heal ailments that we might have and the plants that we still use today for medicines, you know, they still grow. We still can gather them if we need them. And... When we take medicine, there's ceremony that takes part. You have to believe in these medicines, these plants or roots or whatever it might be that we use for medicine. You've got to believe in those a thousand percent for them to work. It's partially you. It's partially that plant. But you have to show respect to those things that help you live. Could you? So a lot of people listening to this podcast are herbalists. Um, a lot of people have hired me and my friends and acquaintances are in the plant world with protecting Appalachian plants. I know yeah. the biodiversity. I've read mm -hmm. in your museum, it says 75% of medicinal plants come, 75% of medicines, I guess medicinal plants come out of this, this Southern Appalachia. That's true. Could you, um, if you know more specific information, could you talk even more like which plants, which trees? Well, with my elders, I'm not allowed to do that. Okay, I was just about to ask that. Because though we still use them, and this has happened before. Mm. When our elders were very trusting, mm. they would give the names of these plants and where to find them and how you use them. But people would not follow directions. Our medicines started getting depleted. It was harder to find them because people were thinking that our medicines would heal them. Mm. There's a certain way we do with these medicines that make them work. Mm. We believe those plants and roots and tree barks and whatever we're using for a medicine. We talk to these trees and plants and everything because, as I said before, when we were all put here together, everything was equal. But we also believe everything has life. Stone, water, all those things. So when we talk medicines, that tree has life. It sleeps during the winter, comes back alive in spring. So do the plants, so do the flowers. So when books started being printed about these medicines, you know, we used to have them in town for two ninety five. Have pictures of the plant or whatever, mm -hmm. and what it was supposed to heal. So the places that I'd used to go to to gather some of these medicines when my kids were sick. Mm. Now I have grandchildren. When I would go to these places, you could tell where these people didn't know how to take that plant from the earth. Mm. 
there's certain plants that you can take it a certain way and it'll regrow the following year. Mm. So these plants were just pulled out of the ground. And then I go to another spot. There's more of it gone. And I know our people don't use more than we need. Mm. So I knew who was doing this. Mm. And I've come into a few people that said they took the medicine and it didn't do nothing for them. It actually made them worse. Mm. I said, that's because it wasn't made for you. Mm. Now, if you had one of us to show you mm. how these things are prepared and what you do when you find it, then it might have worked for that person because mm. we've had healers, which we call them healers. We don't call them shaman or medicine people or medicine man or medicine woman. That's a stereotype name. Mm -hmm. We call them healers because they heal. They can heal you mentally, physically, inside, your your soul, your strength. It can heal. Certain ones can heal you that way. So... These medicines and things that are out there in nature that we still use, you know, we try to not to tell people where they are located. Oh, yeah. Because we still need them. Mm -hmm. You know, before Europeans, we could heal every illness that, you know, came to us. Mm. So, you know, my elders tell me I'm not allowed okay. to mention them and how they're used and things of that nature because— okay. They say there are some things that are too sacred. Yep. To, that for makes us a lot to of talk sense. about. That makes a lot of sense. I often with this podcast ask people even about their spiritual life. And I know all these things can be very private. And, you know, I'm asking, I, you know, am I being nosy? Maybe, but I'm asking because of such intense like wonder and curiosity for these yeah. things. I mean, um, I understand that, but then again, you gotta look at like I said, if I could get people to look through our eyes mm -hmm. and live how we live then you would understand why there are some things that are best mm -hmm. left unsaid mm -hmm. because we've got to hold on to something. Mm. We can't give everything mm. just because people want it. Mm. And that's why I was the way I was taught by my elders, my parents, cousins, people from Cherokee that don't even aren't even kin to me tell me these things. So we have to keep something for us. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the healing medicines and how you prepare them and how you go about when you go to hunt for them or look for them or gather them. There's just certain ways we do it that makes them work. It isn't just something like you go to the hospital and go to the pharmacy and you get your pills or whatever it is you get. It's not like that with our way of life, our spirituality and how we believe in things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances who um, who they do things like um, they're promoting education for things like forest farming, ginseng, blue mm -hmm. cohosh, ramps, uh, blood root, because they are aware that these things are being heavily um, over harvested by people. So, That's right. so a lot of these nonprofits that I've done illustration work for, their mission is to start teaching people how to farm these in their own woods in their backyard. I was getting ready to talk about that when you said that. That was another one of the problems is that a lot of the people that are not Cherokee mm. would go hunt for these plants, mm. yellow root, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And then you go to these herbal stores and you see jars of it dried, chopped up, or however they prepare it, mm. doing it for a profit. 
because they wouldn't have an herbal shop and just give it for free because someone was sick. I mean, the prices on some of these stores I've been in, I couldn't believe it. Mm. Just a small jar of ginseng, mm. a small jar of uh, yellow root, you know. A lot of people know what those things are used for, which, you know, we use those all the time mm -hmm. before Europeans, you know. Of course. There's so many medicines that we use before Europeans that, you know, we still use now. You know, just last week, I stumbled into my the first ginseng I've ever seen in the woods, and it had like a feel, it had, it had like a vibe. You know, yeah. it like yeah. looked at me. It was the weirdest thing. It like yeah. found me. Yeah. And of course I didn't dig this. It's in a state park and everything, but I just like got down on my hands and knees. I've been drawing it. I've been hired to draw ginseng so much. So to finally walk upon it in the woods, it yeah. was a three pronged and they had the the berries were green, yeah. green right now. Yeah. Very small. Yeah. But it had, it had like, it had, it's, you, there's no words really, but there, it had a specialness just like, it, it was amazing. So it, that was so cool to finally walk upon ginseng. Um, so before we get on to a million other topics I could ask you about, um, so the people that did remain here, you said they fought. How were they, how were they somehow not pushed out because this was such an isolated area or, you know, how did they stay here? You know, thinking about that question. You know, I travel. I do lectures at colleges. I meet professors. I meet school teachers. And, and now one thing I noticed in college, I'm not saying anything bad about teachers or anything like that. What I'm saying is I've been doing this about 40 years now. But the way I teach people is not something like here, all these books. I don't read all these books and then turn around and have a classroom with 200 students and, and everything I've read, I'm regurgitating it back to those students. No. Mm. The way I teach is a lifestyle. Mm. Things my elders teach me from family going back in their families plus what I know of mine going back in my ancestry. When this, you know, in 1838 was the physical removal of our people, but it was the process was going on way mm. years way before mm. that. But my grandfather, on my mom's side, uh, his name was John Tisteski. Uh, he lived to be about 109. Now in 1838, he was almost 10 years old. As a grown man, he was about six foot eleven. Big man. So I imagine at ten years old, he was probably my height around five, six, five, seven, somewhere in that area. And he's seen all the things that were going on. You know, I've read a lot of books that, you know, over the years, you know, I see what the written history of us is, and then I worked at the museum for about eleven years, so I'd go back in there and get on the computers and bring things up and read them what all was written about us and the time of removal, the time the soldiers were out trying to gather everybody up to get them out to the southeast. 
but what I read doesn't coincide with what my grandfather seen or other family members that had family that passed down the things they saw. I don't like calling them stories because they're not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're truths. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because in our language before Europeans, we didn't have a word for liar. Mm. So if we didn't have a word for lie or liar, what does that tell you about us? That's why I call these truths. We had people that were there. We had people that seen it. The other story on their side, the history that everybody else read, is their story. Right. My father used to call it his story, history. Mm -hmm. His story. Not ours. Not told by us. Told by them. So when my grandfather was witnessing all this, Junaluska was in an area down near, uh, near uh, Snowbird with a lot of the people. And he's a very prominent figure in our history. There's areas like what is now Bikove, where you had to have a, there was a trail or a road where the wagons and all this were down right by the river. And then all of a sudden it just opened up to a big valley. It's still like that today. But there are stories of how it used to be back then. And when those soldiers, this is the thing, the concept that people don't look at when they read history. Mm -hmm. They just go by what they're hearing. The part you talked about, us running and hiding. There used to be a gentleman that traveled with our group, our warriors of Anigadua. Mm -hmm. His name was Walker Calhoun. We called him Edohi. Now, he was up close to his 90s when he would travel, but I'd known him a long time because of where I worked at the Oakland Left Indian Village. He would always come up there and sit around and talk with everybody. All the you know, men would talk, and it would be in Cherokee. They would be speaking the language, but the stuff they talked about and shared, you know, the people in their their lineage that were at that time in 1838 when all this was going on. So when people read the written history of it, they tend to believe that stone. That it's that's the truth. That's the mm-hmm. way it was. There's mm-hmm. nothing else different. There's nothing, no variation of it. it. This is stone. This is how it really was. And here we're sitting, and we're looking like, no, it's not. Well, it's, it's just the European observation. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. But that's what people believe versus what we tell people. Right. Because it's written, it pretends to have more power than us telling it because our people were there. So when you have a race of people, that's right. Right now, if I tell you, say, take us back, we're both soldiers. I'm the commanding officer, and I tell you, I say, go up Big Cove, around the loop, or go up Stony. Will you know where to go? No. So they have to hire scouts to take them to certain areas. Mm-hmm. When they're pulling the wagons with blankets and their tents and everything they need when they make camp. There's not roads all up in the valleys through these mountains at that time. So having to have a scout to take them to certain areas, them scouts might be working for us. Mm. They'll probably get a scout of the Choctaw or Chickasaw or whoever to, that knows the area, but we might have that Choctaw or Chickasaw working for us mm. and lead them right to us. But they have to stop when they're starting to go up a valley and the road ends. 
So they figured they'd make camp right there. We had runner system. When we know a battle was going to take place, that village that the battle was going to take place, that village would send runners <sighs> to other villages. They in turn would send twenty runners to other villages, saying, "We've got the English <sighs> soldiers, British, whoever. This is where we need to con- converge on to." But the main thing that people don't understand, they really pay attention to the battles and who's fighting and who won and who lost and all that. But the other stuff isn't spoken about in history. Well, that's why I'm excited to be here today because yeah. I actually don't really care that much about battles, about dates. Yeah. I care I mean, about, you can look that up. I care it's all about, over the internet. You can find it anywhere. I care about understanding how different types of people lived day to day throughout history. Yeah. But this, this thing that I'm trying to explain to you, though, is the history that was passed down through families here mm-hmm. when it came to removal, which was what you asked about. Mm-hmm. So our warriors, the way we fought, guerrilla warfare, mm-hmm. we always carried war club and a double-edged knife. I've got a double-edged uh, flint lock, uh, flint bladed mm-hmm. with a wolf, uh, wolf leg handle. And it's old, thousands of years old. But I know it's a warrior knife because it's double-edged. You're saying the handle is made from the bone of a wolf leg? And it's huge. <sighs> it goes back a lot of years. Would, it, it, would it have been the wolves that were here? So they're red wolves? No, they were, this type, uh, the gentleman that I got to look at it and research it okay. and everything, uh, he said the wolves back then were about, looked like St. Bernard's or larger. Wow. The wolves were a lot bigger. Powerful. Powerful yeah. weapon. Oh, you can feel it when you hold that knife. But back to what I was talking about. So you got these soldiers coming into an area where they have no idea where they're at. There's not roads everywhere for their wagons. But we've already took our runners from all these different villages around the area where we've seen those soldiers coming to get us. So our warriors are standing on top of these ridges. They know where they're at. I mean, there's even written accounts of you know, I know a family out of South Carolina that found a journal of one of those soldiers in their attic in a chest. He actually was with one of those parties or these soldier regiments. And they took him by force. They came to his house, knocked on his door, and told him, you're going to help us gather up these Cherokees. Now, if he'd have said no, they'd have shot him on the spot and mm-hmm. called it treason. But he went with them, and he wrote everything down. He said when they made camp, because the road had stopped. That's as far up on the mountain they could go. When they made camp, built their fire, and started getting all the things ready to cook their meal, he said, out of nowhere, out of the rhododendrons come these men in the color of red and black. He said where he was had his tent set, there was a, a little bank that went off by a big, huge tree. Because the trees back here, back then were... Big, big as this library, the whole building. He said he dives off the bank and watches. He watches one of those, he don't call him a warrior, he calls him a fighter of red and black. Took out seven soldiers in a matter of seconds. This is a writing of a man that's hiding from us, our warriors, watching what our warriors do. When he made it back to camp, they actually, he said, when they had uh, done away with all the soldiers except one, at that time, 
our people could speak English. So the best English that that, as he called him a fighter, could speak to that, that last soldier, he told him to go back and tell the rest and rest of them to not come up here hmm. or don't come around here or they will su- suffer the same fate. Hmm. This is a gentleman who was actually there, Incredible. not from us, yeah, from them. Incredible. So in guerrilla warfare, blending into our scenery, we didn't fight out in the open or out in fields like we watched the British and the mm-hmm. French and the English and all them do that. So that's one thing people don't realize when they when they start looking at the history of how this country was formed. It's the real history. Hear it from us too. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at it, ours makes a lot more sense. Mm. It's not as made into a big, huge thing and things added to it to make it more exciting and things like that. So you got to look at that. I mean, just to, to be super honest, that would be so terrifying. Yeah. A bunch of men painted red and black. Yes. Swarming your camp. That would be absolutely terrifying. I mean, they talk of some of the war parties for over 5,000 men or more. Cherokee, 5,000 Cherokee. Painted like that. Can we talk about those paints? Sure. So I started, um, I was reading this book. I know <laughs> you got to let me read my books. Well, I, I'm not saying all books yeah. are false. I'm not saying that. But no. it mentioned this man, I believe his name was John Lawson. And he was an English explorer in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. I, I think on another podcast, I accidentally said 1500s, but it was 1700s. And he had noticed, so he didn't have specific names for the tribes of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I do not think he's talking about the Cherokee. He's talking about those towards the flatter areas and towards the coast. Yeah, He talked about how they would um, make a war paint out of blood root, um, which they had made into a powder and mixed with bear fat. Um, but it, he said that this the, the blood root was extremely valuable to these tribes because they would have to come here, I believe, yeah. to these mountains. Yeah. And they were the enemy of the Cherokee. And so they were coming to get blood root and perhaps dying for blood root. And um, so that got my imagination swirling. And I wondered, okay, well, but how did the Cherokee paint themselves red? Was it with blood root? Was it with ochre? Was it with something? I have no idea. How did they create those reds and those blacks? You know, the thing is, some of the tribes that you speak of that came down for that blood root, not all of them were enemies. Okay. Just the part I was reading was saying that, yeah, that it I'm, was but like I'm, a, That's what I'm saying, because yeah. I've heard those things before in my lifetime. Mm. And that's one thing about writings is that it's always something having to do with tribes not getting along. Hmm. If you talk to the elders of all these other tribes, because I traveled the country for 30-some years in the powwow circuit, I've got to meet a lot of different tribes and talk to their elders and do ceremonies with them up through Canada. And the stories they tell you versus what you read about these different tribes, you know, it's always they were fighting each other, which is false, because we would invite surrounding tribes to take part in our ceremonies, Mm. festivals, Mm. feasts. They, in turn, would do us the same way. But when it came to warriors and the paint, we didn't use bloodroot. Okay. We used the red ochre. Okay, what is that? What is red ochre? It's a stone. Okay. It's it's similar to a pipe stone because I'm an artist, too. I wood carve, stone carve, beadwork, pottery, baskets, all that. I can do all that. 
But ochre, sometimes you can find it in the ground in slats. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of it, you know, you can find it in like modules. Okay. So what we do, we just scrape that off. And we used to have what they called uh, paint plates made out of clay. Uh, I actually got one. It's like a palette? It's like a, it's like a plate. Okay. Flat, made out of clay. It looks like a plate. Okay. Because we have uh, pictures of them that they found in village sites. So when warriors were getting ready to paint up, they would scrape the ochre to like a powder, like you was talking about the blood root. And the bear grease was used. Mm-hmm. And that was what was put on us first, mm. cover our whole body. It's basically a warrior going to battle. Usually only had breech clout, mm. his moccasins, side knife, his pouch, uh, tomahawk, or, um, you know, his war club. He always had war club. But the markings he put on his body was with black ochre. Mm. Another stone. Yes. Mm. It's the same type, but it's a different color. Mm. The markings that he put on his body were personal stories mm. of his himself. Mm. That's why in battle times, we knew who the war chief was. Even though he was painted and you couldn't recognize him like he looked in normal life, the paintings on his face or his arms uh, would let you know, looking at a distance while you're fighting the enemy, where he's at. Now, if he's to fall in death, the next man up behind him would take over the whole war party. But we, when we painted in red, the color red to the warriors stood for blood, life, and war. That's why we covered in red, because we knew that the blood was going to be shed, and it was in time of war, but also blood ro- goes through your body to keep you alive. And the ha- black stood for death. So... So I used to do music videos and uh, I used to live in New York. I used to do music videos. I got hired to do a metal music video yeah. and um, I was kind of acting in parts of it. It was with old film. Um, and for one part, we were in the woods at night and I wanted to kind of feel like I was embodying this like forest demon. So I completely painted my body like pitch black and I put on these long nails. And when I was in this character, I like felt incredible energy. So I'm wondering when you have painted yourself in the ancestral way for these for the dances that you're part of, do you feel like power? Yes. Now it kind of makes me think when you said that, when you feel that power when you were painted your whole body. Uh, we used to go to Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia every year for about close to 15 years or more. cultural ambassadors, if you go on to YouTube and type in Warriors of Anigadua, Cherokee, North Carolina, you'll see videos of us, commercials of us that we've done, painted as warriors, doing programs. We don't 
in the old, the, the ones with like my mom and my dad and all them didn't call ourselves Cherokee because that's not really our name. It has no meaning. We don't have the R sound in our language. So the word Anigadua, it means I come from the mother town, which is about seven miles from here near Bryson City called Gadua. That is where our people began. When the Creator put us in this world, Gadua is where we were put. So saying, as they, my parents said, they would say, Ani Gaduogi, which means me as a human being come from the mother town of Gadua. And Gadua to us meant the center, the nucleus, where we began as a people. Because it's hard to put our language into English language. You can't interpret. You know, to know the language, it's a feeling when you speak it. You see it in your mind while you're speaking it. So all those come together when you speak the language. When we say Anigadawogi, it's not just like in English, you just speak a note and don't even think of what you see. You don't see anything when you speak in English. But when you speak in Cherokee language, you see what you're talking about. You feel things that you're talking about. So Gadua, being the mother town or the center, you know, Gadua could have, in English, if describing it, what it means in the Cherokee language, you might four or five pages in English language, but Gadua is the name of the mother town. So that's, in that area down there, is the most sacred place to us as Cherokee people, us here. And those in Oklahoma, we have a gathering every year, which we had about a month ago with the uh, United Gadua Band and the nation from Oklahoma come down, their chiefs and people came and we celebrated. We danced, feast, those kind of things. So, that's what the warriors of Anigadua, the warriors from the mother town, the protectors. But if you look at the truth about it before Europeans, down there you could not feel anger toward anyone, no animosity. You couldn't even think about war. There was no weapons there. It wasn't allowed. So that's why when, when Europeans came and they started taking land by force, that's why that area was so easily taken over because there you're not supposed to have that thought in your mind that you're going to fight someone or you have anger or animosity. That's why they took over that area so quickly. So that's what that word means in the warriors. Now, when you were talking about the paint, yes, it makes you feel like you're back in that time period when the R warriors did paint it. And when I talked about Colonial Williamsburg, there's a place out there, it's called the Palace Green. The first year we went out there, our warriors hadn't danced on that ground in close to 300 years. So we, our group, the Warriors of Angadua, we all painted like the old warriors. Because my grandfather seen what warriors looked like painted, so we knew how we were painted and families of the other guys in the group, you know, they described what they were told how warriors looked and painted and what they wore. So we knew that was correct. We didn't have to go to all these books that describe their version of us and what we looked out like and those kind of things. We already knew. And when we knelt down, because in our warrior dances, the first dance we do, every program we do and have done for over 20 years, the beginning of the program is a warrior dance. And when we knelt down on that grass, you could feel them beside us. A gentleman that was in our group 
was very quiet all the time. It's just kind of his, you know, his demeanor that was, you know, his personality. He's a real quiet guy. But when we got finished that dance and the whole program was over, he wouldn't shut up. It affected him so much that he just continuously talked from the time we left that site and made it and got in the van. They loaded us up in vans and got back to the motel. He continuously talked. And that's how much him, and he was even looking at me, he said, son, you feel that? Did you feel that? They Like they were right there. I mean, I could feel them right beside me kneeling down and getting ready to dance. Said, yeah. You know, spiritually, when I talked about seven worlds, you know, how, how I would believe spiritually, those warriors that passed on, that danced at those grounds, because inside we believe there are four things. There's your soul, there's your spirit, there's your heart, and there's your mind. So when we do these ceremonies thing, you have to have all those working together. But the spirit of the body is what leaves when our shell is left in this world. When it no longer can be used, it's worn out. So our spirit and soul leaves the body. Those four things leave our shell that we leave back in this world and travels to the next world. So this right here on my shoulder in the syllabary, it says Nanahi. In our language, Nanahi means the spirits of those people that's died before us. So we talk about spirits. That's the best word we can use in English to describe Nanahi. <clears throat> but that's what those warriors came back to dance with us on that palace green. You know, when we went out there, when we done this program, there was over 10,000 people at that event watching our program. So uh, it, we were about education. And you ask about Sequoia. Yeah, a lot so of people I, I just, don't uh, realize that his name, they say Sequoia, but it said Sequoia. Sequoia. He was given to him at a young age. Um, most of the Cherokees had one word name. They didn't have two names. Um, when he was born, his foot was round like a club. That's why drawings uh, you'll see of him with his turban on and he's walking with a cane. Hmm. That's because one of his feet were deformed. He looked like a club. Club-footed. Yeah. That's what Sequoia means. Really? It so, means he's got, a he, he's got a clubbed foot. Interesting. I, so I just read about him last night and I was blown away. Yeah, and that's the thing is that when we finally started getting horses and cows and chickens and pigs brought to this country, because most people think they were already here, which they weren't, we na we got a name for the pig. We call it Tsikwa. Okay, you say Tsikwa, Tsikwaya. Here the the sim similars in the in the beginning of the name, Tsikwaya, Tsikwa. The reason we call a pig that is because its foot is rounded. Hmm. So that name to him given to him when he was young, Tsikwaya, means he has a rounded foot. 
So I bet those people in California don't realize they named them trees, Round rounded foot, foot trees. <laughs> well, tell just tell briefly about who he was because this is very well, fascinating part of your history. His English name was George Gist. I became friends with his great-great-grandson, Sequoia Guess, who was a storyteller. And I got all my information. I mean, I already knew by reading and, and talking with elders that, you know, and their lineage are akin to him also. Learned a lot about who he really was versus the written history of him in by non-Cherokees. But Sequoia Guest, you know, told me that, uh, you know, when he created this uh, syllabary, what he was doing, he was watching the English write. They would write on a flat piece of paper. They'd scribble these things on it. But without speaking a word, they could take that flat piece of whatever it was, carry it across the room to another person. They would open it up, and they could read what the other person said without that person even saying a word. It is magical in a way. So he wanted that for us. Mm -hmm. So he sat down and he started, you know, scribbling out these different types of symbols. But first he started listening to our people talk. And he started dividing the words up into sounds, like you learn in elementary, the syllabary. And, they say, and the teachers will make you divide English words up into the syllables. So Sequoia done the same thing with our language. And while he was working on it, it took him about 12 years. Around 1811, he started on it. 24, 23, 24 is when he finally finished it. But the reason why it took him so long, it wasn't that it was that difficult to actually write it, it's that his wife kept burning his progress. Yeah, he'd get to a certain wow. point, she'd take all the papers, and she'd put them in the fire. Wow. But when he was doing this, what, what he called the writing on a paper, he called it talking leaves because it was flat like a leaf, but it could speak. So when he started on that and it took him that long to finally complete it, there are 86 symbols they look similar to the English alphabet, but there's like squiggly lines and little circles added to them. And then he created the Cherokee syllabary. Now, the schools back at that time, after he created, the Cherokee schools that our Cherokee people were going to, they actually learned how to read and write the written language. Then after when that point, and it became more and more being taught to more Cherokee people, we invented our first paper, which was done in New Echota, Georgia, which is a historic site. They've got a museum down there, and that was actually the second capital uh, before removal. But down there, they have the original printing press. They actually, when the, the area was taken over by the soldiers and things, they threw the original printing press in the river. Years later, they dug it back up and got the original pieces and refurbished the ones that they could salvage but then they researched around for old printing presses that in that era that they could get the parts to finish the printing press. So this is 1820s, 1830s? Yeah. The removal was 38? 38, yes. He created wow. this before the removal times. So our first newspaper, which half was written in the Cherokee language, the other half was written in English. That way they could read it, and so could we. And it was called the Cherokee Phoenix. It was printed in New Echota, Georgia. And 
because of Sequoia, that that's what happened. Yeah. Absolutely awesome. Changing gears a little bit. Could we talk about 1600s, 1700s, pre-European contact? What was Cherokee life like? Like, so in school, in school in Northern Virginia, when you learn about Native Americans, it's so stupid. They teach you, it's, you know, you're not getting any, it's not broken up by tribe, et cetera. So I'm very, you know, I interviewed a Nanticoke man on the Eastern shore last summer. So I was extremely fascinated when he talks about how the Nanticoke lived, how Powhatan, um, the Powhatan Confessory, how they lived, how were the Cherokee living through looking in books? You know, it, I even got to see some nice diagrams, how there were summer and winter uh, quarters. Like, could you talk a little bit just like what the village would look like? What, what was everybody eating? It, was it half hunting, half uh, farming? Like, what was daily life like? I know that's a million questions in one, but like, could you kind of paint a picture of society? Well, I can answer the questions. I'm just, I'm seeing what you're saying. Yes, and I would like to see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, before European times, our lifestyle was simple. It was survival. You know, there were villages all along the large lakes and rivers, and a lot of most of them had barricades. Barricade. Yeah, long, long, long poles or trees. You know how a barricades mm -hmm. put around the old forts and mm -hmm. stuff like that, and in the military days back when power struggles were going on. Because we were farmers, like I said earlier. We didn't live up in the mountains. We lived down by the rivers and lakes. So the reason the barricades were put up was to keep the large animals out of the gardens, mm. eating up all the crops. But we had those that we grew. You know, They talk about the three sisters, corns, beans, and squash, which was a, a part of our diet. We had traps that we could put in the river to catch fish. Mm. Uh, if uh, you go to the Oconopter in the village, they actually have a fish trap. I would love to see that. We have a bear trap up there, a I bird would love trap. To see that. And uh, so you had, when you talked about summer and winter, you know, we had a, what they call a waddle and daub house. And if you go to the village, you'll see one that's built a small version. But most of those waddle and daub houses were basically storage. We rarely ever stayed in them. Uh, they had fire, fire pit in the very center. The center of the roof at the top did angle down four sides, but it had like a little roof that was raised in the middle because our fireplaces were put in the middle of the homes. So when you build a fire, all the smoke could escape, but if it rained, no rain could hit mm -hmm. and put out the fire because we, before Europeans, we had fire year-round because mm -hmm. we needed it for cooking different things. The only time once a year the fires were put out, and the council house was continuous yeah, all year long, every year. So the whole village would put their fires out, clean out the pits. They would go back to the council house and get an ember from that fire. They would all take it back to their homes and relight their fires again. Mm -hmm. With the central fire? Yes, the one in the council house. So that was like a, a meeting place? It Was it often circular I saw in the museum? Well, no, they're not circular. They were sided. Okay. We had uh, areas for the whole seven clans, and then we had an area where the chiefs sat. Okay. So anytime that village had to have a council meeting, be it about a, a problem in the village or 
a meeting to see what they could do to better the village. And then they would have councils in that council house. And that's where that fire, the embers, they would get restart the fires in the homes. So inside the house, I mean, inside the village, you would see the homes all over. You'd see the big gardens that, you know, everybody attended to them. You know, in the, for some reason in the books I've read, it was always the woman tending to the garden, which is false in, in our tribe's way of life. Mm. Men went out, checked traps for the meat, for the village, checked the fish traps. We knew we could have fish because I've actually built one of these traps and put it in the river, and it works. Mm. But um, in the back of it, it's a lid that comes up. They have, like I said, they have one at the Oakland of the Indian Village. And when you lift the back of it up, that's when you reach in and get as many fish as you like. It's a, is it a type of basket with a funnel? Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a square okay. structure. But in the opening that faces up the stream where the water runs through it, they attach these uh, uh, water um, – um, river cane. They mm. would split it into points, mm. and they would have them tied on the inside, mm. so they would sway back and forth with the current when it came through. So when the fish <sighs> swam through them to the back of the trap, when it tried to come forward to go out, those points would make them stay inside the trap. So amazing! I've seen eel eel traps similar. The eel pots that people use have used in the past. The Indian ones on mm-hmm. in the in the um, eastern shore. Yeah. So kind of similar, just in that the backing out. Yeah. Um, how about the animal traps? Because I gave you a, a raccoon pelt. Yeah. You know, trapping is. I'm a hunter um, as well. But trapping has been a little intense. It's a little bit more emotionally intense. Um, but I have done. A you little- know, a lot of our hunting techniques are still used today, like how you would try. When I remember when I was young, how we used to catch the chickens. Mm. Some of mine could cook them for supper that evening. You know, you just put out a little corn, and you have that big piece of rope or whatever it was my dad would give us and wait for that chicken to come out into that circle and start picking up on that corn, and you just pull that string, and you catch him. And it, and it lassos around the foot? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Then Good. we just go out there and grab the chicken, grab it by its legs and hang it upside down and take it to my mom. She did what she had to do to prepare it for her, how did her food. The, how did the bear trap work? Well, it's hard to explain. You'd have to go see it, but it's actually like a half oval. Okay. And then it's got two, it's got two logs. One stands up at the top, but then one has under it has a stem stinging down. That's what the meat's put on. Okay. So when that bear comes in and tugs at that meat, it, it triggers that bottom one to move so that top one can then fall down and pinch the bear, either breaking its back. Oh, it's a kill trap? Yeah. Wow. So it's... If it doesn't kill it, that's why the hunters would go check the traps. Yeah. If the bear wasn't killed, but was it was caught in the trap, then they'd finish it off and then just, you know, clean it right there, take the hide. We used everything. The hides were used, the head ceremony, things of that nature. We kept the claws. The hides were made into clothing. The bones were made into tools. The food was used to feed everybody. So every animal we took, we used every part of it. So the the log would fall on it, yeah. and crush it to death. Yeah. Wow. You know, if you could, if you have a chance, go up to the village. I'm gonna, and you can you can see them. But yeah, we had so many different ways was to that, catch animals. Was that the main way for for bear for the Cherokee, or did they also just go out and hunt them? We could Stock hunt them too with bow and arrow. 
stocking uh, them? Because if when you go into the museum, they have the two types of arrowheads. You have the the hunting points, which are rounded, and then you have the war points that have the barbs on the end. Mm-hmm. You have your point, then it comes out, mm-hmm. and those little barbs. There's a reason they're put on there. So the hunting points, when they would wrap the sinew to hold the, the point onto the shaft, which was made out of river cane, and we'd use probably turkey fletchings. We never used, like, uh, birds of prey like hawks or eagles, and those were very sacred, and we mm-hmm. used those in ceremony and wore them in ceremony. So most of the time where the abundance of the wild turkey at that time was so so many of them, they would take the feathers and make fletchings too, not like today's modern arrows with three. Mm. And we would cut a notch out of the, out of that uh, fletching, and the way we tied it on, instead of tying it just at the top and bottom, we would tie it with the feather facing down toward the arrowhead point, mm. tie the quill down, then we would fold the feather back and tie it at the top because mm. it give it that bow. Mm. So whenever you shot the arrow, it'd spin mm. like a drill bit. Mm. So the hunting points, as fast as in the velocity they were going because our hickory bows were stout, it'd go completely through a deer. I mean, I used to make traditional bows and arrows for mm. avid deer hunters, and they'd bring me and send me pictures of what they'd killed with them. And they said some of those arrows would go completely through that deer. Have you hunted with them too? Uh, I've not really hunted big game like that. Mm. I don't. I don't hunt for the sport. Mm-hmm. If I go hunting, it's to feed my family, mm-hmm. or if a family needs food or meat and don't have enough money to go to a food line or wherever, you know, mm. that's the only time I would hunt big game just to get make sure they could fill their freezer up and mm-hmm. have food, you mm-hmm. know. But I've hunted squirrels with the blowguns. No way. Tell tell us about the blowguns. <laughs> Well, I actually make them too, and people think you can whip up a blowgun in a week. No, you can't. Is it also with the river cane? Yeah. Um, so it, it, that has like a hollow center. Well, the pith? process of it isn't real easy. You have to go find a, a, uh, a river cane patch. We've got some now that's been. We're starting to plant it in different areas now, and you always go to the center of the river cane patch to find a, the biggest. Uh, river cane pieces because river cane fights for sunlight. Hmm. So the outer river cane won't grow that high. But when it does grow up so high, the seedlings, once they do fall from the river cane and germinate in the ground, they grow in the middle. They grow taller than the outside. So then the more that grow further inside the middle will grow taller than the ones that are actually in the middle too. So it just keeps continuously getting taller. But you probably won't find a real tall river cane. People tend to get river cane and bamboo mixed up. I mean, they're a family, hmm. but river cane is it's indigenous to this area. So I'll go and I'll look at the straightest point, hmm. straightest pieces that I can find. The joints have to be a pretty good distance away. I've seen blowguns like this, and it's just too much trouble. You made like a foot? You did a foot, foot with your or hands. more. Okay. The distance between the joints. Mm-hmm. Now those joints are solid. Mm-hmm. They have a membrane inside that yes. goes up and down. Yes, I see what you're saying. So when we get the river cane and cut it, once we get it back, build a fire outside. Certain types of wood we use to burn 
They give off the heat. The hardwoods give a better heat, but also have color in them. So what I look at is the different colorations for the heat. So when I'm got my, um, I've got my river cane cut to the length I want, maybe a little longer. I take all the growth these sprouts that come your, out. You just did with your hands, like three yes. feet. Yes, three feet. And uh, what do you mean three feet? Uh, you did. You kind of made a measurement with your hands, like a three foot. Piece. No, it, these pieces. The one I've got's over ten foot. Your blowgun is 10 foot? Yeah. Uh, some of the guys that I know that shoot blowgun competition-wise and some of the guns have been passed down through the family can go up to 13 foot. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, okay. But there's a, there's a reason for that is because it ain't just grabbing the gun and putting it up to your mouth and just blowing air through it because mm-hmm. that dart's going to come out to you and just hit the ground. Mm-hmm. you got to learn on your own gun mm-hmm. how to seal it, and then you've got to have a strong one-breath push. Mm. And that takes a lot to get it because most people say, God, I don't, couldn't believe how hard it was to learn how to shoot one of these things. But uh, back to the process now, once I've got it cut, say, 14 feet long, mm-hmm. I'll take all the bloom that's growing out toward the top of it. I'll take all that off. So after I got my fire built, and I'll sit down, and I'll just start running that blowgun or the river cane across that fire, just one section at a time. And I notice when it starts to get real glassy, that means the moisture's coming out. I used to have a piece of deer hide on my leg that I use when I make blowguns, and I'll, I'll roll it back and forth, that one section that's heated, until I can bend it to where it's all kind of straight. And then I'll let it cool. Because when it cools down, it stays that same uh, straightness. So I do that for every section. Then I'll look at it, roll it in my hand, and see what parts need to be straightened out, and I'll go back, reheat them. And I continuously do that, which takes two or three weeks. Even after you've got it straightened and you hang it up, I usually use four nails to keep them straight when I lay them on those nails while they're drying. I'll take them down in a couple of days, and they've got crooked again. Hmm. I'll go back to the fire, reheat them until I get them as straight as I can. Now, when you look down the outside of them, they look like crooked. But in the old days before Europeans, when we made the blowguns, we would use a flint point, small one. Some people call them bird points, Hmm. and put that on a long shaft of walnut or oak or hickory, Hmm. and we'd take that and put it down through the inside of the river cane. Hmm. When we hit that membrane, we'll spin it, and it cleans all that membrane out, go down to the next one and continue us on until we get to about midway. We'll flip the the river cane over, start on the other end, Hmm. do the same process until all the membranes are clear. Mm -hmm. Then after that, the process before you clean all the, the, the joints out, is that uh, usually when you go down so far on one side, you put river sand down in the river cane and just use the shaft of wood running it back and forth just like sandpaper. Mm. process took a little longer, but mm. still, yeah, it, it smoothed the inside of the gun. Then you flip it over, take out the last membrane, and then you'll put sand down in it and smooth that end of it. But when you look down through the middle of that gun, it's smooth and straight. Mm. And you'll turn it 
I usually face mine up toward the sunlight, and I'll turn it to where you, that circle, you can see it at the end. It's perfectly round, and I'll mark the end of the gun. Hmm. So that's the straightest part hmm. when I shoot. Now, the darts are made out of uh, locust. Okay. You carve those down by hand with a knife, and then the end of it is made out of uh, thistle. Okay. Purple thistle. It's not Scottish thistle. It's purple thistle. Okay. I don't know if many books, they talk about purple thistle. If it's a Scottish thistle, it didn't grow here. It's a purple flower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's harvested. I've harvested many, thousands of them in my lifetime. So we, it's, it's not Scottish thistle. We call it purple thistle or a jeej in our language is the name of that. That flower, a jeege. What's the, the name for the blow the blowgun? Tuguest. 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 Close. Yeah. Ish. But that's the name of the river cane. That's the English name for it. We call it Tuguesti. And a jeege, which is the thistle that makes, you know, the dart. But so 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 this would be for hunting small game. Yeah, rabbits, squirrels, small game birds. And you, do you turkey. shoot them in the head or you shoot them in the Well, in the, the smaller ones you can shoot them in the body because it's according to how good of a shot and how strong your shot, your power of your breath mm. of yeah, what how, you can kill how with far, it. How far is a proficient hunter? How far could they fire one? Well, in competition, we shoot about 60 feet. Wow. But there are written accounts where they witnessed one of our Cherokee men shoot a wild turkey in the eye. That's how you kill them. Wow. Yeah, probably about 100 feet or more. And what a small target. A golf ball size. But here's the thing. If you're living out in the wilderness. Oh, you're doing this every single day, 24-7. And it means survival. Yeah. You're going to learn how to hit wild turkey in the eye. Hell yeah, you are. So people think, you have to kill wild turkey? Their skin is tough. How would you get a dart in there to kill us? Shoot them in the head. (laughs) Because we used to have competitions with the, you know, 60 feet of big old archery targets, what we <laughs> shoot at, bullseyes about this big. <laughs> we would set things up this small. Yeah, a golf ball. About that size, mm-hmm. you know, a target, just mm-hmm. make it out of anything. And we would bet, <laughs> shooting competition, who could hit it? And a pretty good distance away, probably further away than 60 feet. <laughs> and we would hit it. Wow. That's very exciting. Yeah, so that's one of the tools we use for hunting. Some books call it, we use it in war. We never did. I was just going to ask that. Never you never put, Is it too small of a caliber so he, type weapon? It just makes somebody mad. Yeah, it just pisses them off. If you shot them, yeah, it just makes them mad. But I have, I have stuck one dart in a gentleman's calf before. On purpose? On purpose, because <laughs> he was bothering me, <laughs> making fun of my shooting, and he started back down the trail at the village. <laughs> He started walking down the trail to where the traps were at, and I shot him in the calf, and it stuck. <laughs> did he come and fight you, or was no, that No, he subtle? did not, because I had more darts. <laughs> and the closer he got, the further in they would go if I shot him again. So he he just pulled it out and some, some said some choice words as he was walking away, <laughs> but he knew why I'd done it. But that's the thing. is Some books write and say that um, – that the blowgun was used in warfare, which it never was, ever. That was only made to hunt small mm. game. It's so cool. Yeah. But the villages, you know, you know how they were set up. We had a clan system we went by, seven clans. It's like seven large families within 
the village, even though those people that come from the same clan, like Umbert clan, that was my mom's clan. That's how people get their clan is through their mom, not through the father, through the mother. Matriarchal. Yeah. So me being bird clan, even though there's so many bird clan here in Cherokee, there's so many bird clan out in Oklahoma, and that lot of it's not even blood kin to me, but they're my brother and sister by our clan. Clan siblings. Clan family. Clan family. So I just, in the museum, so I ran over to the museum and I, I kind of went, rushed through it for 30 minutes before this conversation because it just opened yeah. um, this morning. Um, I saw the chart with the seven clans. Yeah. That was one of my favorite things. Yeah. So it said bird clan, that, that one of the clan specialties is bird trapping. Well, <laughs> my mom and dad and a bunch of others that I talked to about these things, I seen like that. Uh-huh. When you use common sense and really sit down and talk about them, mm-hmm. they don't pan out. Mm. Um, I don't want to go into the discussion of that because that takes a long time mm-hmm. to go to each clan and what they're supposed to be their spe- specific mm-hmm. things they're good at. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're saying we're good with snares. Mm. Uh, we're good with birds. We had, we had a form of falconry before that was ever brought to this country. Mm. We used hawks and those kind of things to hunt mm-hmm. the small birds or whatever. Uh, wolf, like my dad was from Wolf Clan. Mm. So they used the wolves like we used blue ticks and all these other hunting dogs. We used wolves in that matter. No way. Yeah. You, yeah. So the the Wolf Clan would use hunting wolves? Yeah. F- for, they train them. For like bear and deer? Yeah. Because they already have the instinct of how, oh you know. Oh, my. So I have a, I have a uh, squirrel dog. Yeah. And I'm I'm very interested in people with the bear dogs. You know, my dad used to make hunting dogs out of mutts. Really? He didn't have to have blue tick and all these other expensive dogs. He'd just get a mutt off the road and start training how to hunt. And was he going for it bear? Was, was he bear dogging? Yeah, he could bear dog it. He could squirrel, squirrel dog, everything. Squirrel dog, rabbit, whatever. I used to train chihuahuas. Because when I was little, I had chihuahuas all the time. Well, I they don't know why. Mean. Chihuahuas can oh, be mean. Oh, they're right with them rabbits. When they're young, <laughs> they're right on them. And if they go down in that burrow, they go right behind them. And that scares you at, at the beginning. But then I'd listen. And I'd hear them, you know, when they're grappling around. And all of a sudden, I'd see the tail of my little chihuahua sticking straight up, just like it had mm-hmm. the worst anxiety mm-hmm. attack it's having. Mm-hmm. And it'd start backing out. It'd have that squirrel either by the hind leg mm. or by, it didn't pull its tail off. Mm. And it'd have it by, the, you know, the back of its leg, mm. pulling it out of the, mm-hmm. the hole. So that's why I used to teach my chihuahuas how to, how to rabbit hunt. Yeah, so my dad, you know. So, it, so, it, so, so the wolf clan would somehow be able to train the, the wild wolves. Yeah, but the thing is, is they didn't get them like full grown. Okay. Where we had connection with animals, mm-hmm. the wolf packs, if we took one that was already trained in hunting and know what family of being in a pack and how they would round up deer or whatever it is that they're going to hunt, it's a huge pack. That's already instilled in these uh, half-grown, not full-grown, but half-grown young ones. Mm-hmm. So whenever they were taken and then used because they already had the instinct in the mindset of how to hunt these animals at a full-grown age when our wolf clan had them and trained them 
even more. And so would the Cherokee hunters just have to run after the wolves? Because I know a little bit about, I've gone out once with bear dogs. Like you just, you know, today we've got GPS, people follow that back. I know the... the Here's the thing that, that I tell people when they ask a question like that. Okay. You see a lot of stories about animals. Most of the time it's a dog. If their owner is hurt somewhere, mm-hmm. they'll run. And when they find the first human, they'll run so far and stop and come back. They're, that's how they speak into you. Mm-hmm. They might be whining because mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. trying to tell you their master is hurt on up above. So if those wolves have taken down a deer, you know, you can hear them. Yeah. Or maybe one of them comes back to do the same as that dog did for its master. Incredible. So that's the thing that society tends not to think of those type of things when it comes to how we and animal worked with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we never hunted for, for sport. Yeah. Anytime we hunted, it was for survival. Yeah, of to course. Feed everyone. Well, one of the things I'm so interested in is how people have used uh, plants and animals for, like you said, survival, yeah. clothing, tools. Um, you have already mentioned a bunch, but like yeah. I love, you know, we we have houndsman friends who have given us jars of bear fat. Yeah, and we've you know cooked with. It. We've put my girlfriend; she puts it in her hair. Um, you know, we've put it on our our dry skin, our hands. Yeah, that's why I tell people, you know, when the warriors paint it with the ochre, ochre's used in today's modern makeup for women. Really? So it's already good for your skin. And just from what you said just now. It's in the bear. You put that bear fat on your skin and it makes your skin soft. So if you got the combination of ochre and the bear fat that warriors are putting on their bodies, you can imagine the skin, oh, how soft and be, clean and oh, yeah. it would be. And and like when I was getting into trapping, I wanted to try using like uh, raccoon fat. Good thing too. Drink okay. a little bit of it. Really? It's good for your stomach. Nice. Thank you. I'm yeah. going to try that. We have a little Because when we travel, our group, mm-hmm. uh, one of the gentlemen's, uh, who, which his name is Bullet Standing Deer. It's his real name. He always used to bring a little old jar of the bear fat with him. Mm-hmm. And we'd sit before, after we'd get painted up, waiting on the time to go out and do our program. We'd sit there and take a couple sips of it, and then he'd put it up. That's incredible. I've it, seen- it's good for your every bit of your stomach, all the way down, your stomach walls, your intestines. Yeah, I've seen for that. That's incredible. I've seen photos in uh, of um, the Cree up in Canada. And they would actually carve out a sacred, a ceremonial spoon to drink yeah. the bear fat. Yeah. Like you're kind of saying. Yeah. Man, that's so cool. Yeah. And we also, you know, use that in resin. Resin? For uh, our canoes. To spread along the outside of it, make it waterproof. The bear fat? Yeah. Boil wow. It, boil it with the resin till it gets real so, so like res- a syrup. A resin from what? One of the pine trees? Yeah. You can, you can, there's a certain time of year they run and you can, that's why I tell a lot of campers, when you see that resin running, pull some of that bark off. You talk about a fire starter. Mm. Once you get, it's like tar paper burning. Well, even the animal fats are too. Yeah. Like I mean, when the I'm, pine resin, it's, that we used to gather that when I worked at the village because that's what we started everybody's fires with in the morning. We didn't have to go to 
get door log and all that other stuff, you know. I've used the so, so when I was messing with the r- raccoon fats, you could just use the raccoon fat to start your fire too. Yeah, yeah. and I made a candle out of the raccoon fat. Yeah. I, I rendered it down and yeah, I, just I mean, that, if candle. you use the concept of what they used to whale oil, exactly. Now you're getting it. That's what our people have done. All those things are already invented and used for who knows how many years. Of course. And then when we tell people the stuff we do now that modern society says, well, this was invented in this year, but we're like, we've been doing that for thousands of years. It's like the gauges that I I used to wear, the big gauges in my ears. Really? And I had a lot of young people that are in college where I do lectures, colleges, schools, and everything. You're too old to be wearing those gauges. That's young people wear gauges. People your age shouldn't be wearing those things. I said, go to our museum. F you. Yeah, exactly. I said, if you We've walk in and you forever. see that that front of the Waddle and Dobb house, mm-hmm. it used to have a little screen with a, with a healer, and he would give a speech on this little screen. If you go right beside it on the wall, there's a gauge in there this big. Mm. Oh, it's so probably around 10,000 years old. Really? So when I was in high school and early college, I was really into metal. And mm-hmm. like a lot of the guys in the metal scene and girls would have the huge gauges like you're yeah. talking about in their ears. And that's the size of the one in there that we wore in our ears. Wow. So that's what I tell those kids. I say, if you go in our museum, there's a gauge in there the size this big that we wore in our ears almost 10,000 years ago. The the size that you're doing is like a, like a silver dollar. Pretty close to it. Yeah. Yeah. My, my buddy, uh, Mike Crow. Um, he travels with our group a lot, and he's worked at the museum with me when I worked there. Oakland left the inner village, travels with a warrior group. He used to wear gauges that huge. Mm. I mean, they were huge. And uh, it took him a while to get his ears to stretch that big. But, yeah, that would be – we used different sizes, mm. but that size he had in his ear was like the one in the museum. Do you know what stones they would have been putting – for the most of the, mostly is the t- type of pipe stones that were in the area. Okay. In the parts of the nine states that we actually lived in. Okay. Because you find different types when because I've worked with Flint for over thirty years, probably about forty two years now, and um, according to my area, the Flint that I go together down Georgia, it's some of it's kind of a creamy, pinkish looking mm. with dark b- brown veins in it. Then you got some up toward Kentucky that's dark gray. So it's according to area. Flint changes color. It's not all the same color according to the areas. So there were different types of pipe stones and things of that nature also that, you know, had different colorations to them that we used in ceremonial pipes. Mm. And that's what people don't realize. In our museum, we have this one little island. It's flat, and it's got maybe 15, 20 different types of pipes. And I, they say, God, you just made pipes, you know, for decoration in your homes. I'm like, no. Every pipe in that glass case is used in a different ceremony. Mm, they have different meanings for different rituals. That's why there are different things carved on them. The images, effigy, pipes, and all that, that's why they're done differently is because it's used for a certain ceremony. Well, That's what, why they're made that way. What kind of ceremonies? Like, what what are some examples of a of a ceremony where the pipe would be brought out? Could be a hunting ceremony. Have a bear on it, some type of animal. Hmm. Uh, some of them have human faces. Could be done. Ceremony could be done for the healing of a woman or a man. 
that's why you see those in the old pipes, not the modern pipes. Modern pipes are more of just a, a type of art. Hmm. When you start looking in archives and all these other places that have thousands of year old pipes, you'll notice those different styles on the end of the pipes. Hmm. And what people don't realize, some of them are sexual too. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, they have the actual thing carved on the pipes, hmm. like the man and the woman and hmm. that kind of thing. But to us, you know, today's society teaches you that's a bad thing, sexuality. Yeah. In our way of life, it wasn't. Right. But, uh, you know, when the Europeans first encountered us, the villages they come to, every man and woman was just wearing a breech clout. A breech clout would be a frontal piece? And a back piece. And a back. So the women would be topless? Topless. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the children, three or four years old, were running naked. around naked. Mm-hmm. But men had respect for women. We didn't gawk at their breasts and stuff like that like men do today, you mm-hmm. know. We respected them. We knew that those were used to feed the children, mm-hmm. the babies. The reason their front and back was covered is because when they got married, only the man they married would be able to see that parts of their body. Mm. That's why they wore them. And then the men, vice versa, covered that because that was only for the wife to see. Mm. That's amazing. That's something I've never heard before. Thank you. I love that. But, you know, our village is running by the clan system. We have the chief system, one chief. Uh, usually when he was in council house on his right would be uh, the beloved people, beloved men and beloved women. Our last beloved man, Jerry Wolf, who I worked with at the museum, passed away about four years ago, three or four years ago. Very, very knowledgeable man, fluent speaker, language, new medicines, all that. This was what Mr. Jerry Wolf was. And everybody liked him, good person, laid back, very easy to get along with, and then on the left-hand side of that chief in the council house would be seven elders or seven council. It'd be either four women, three men, or vice versa. Because we had a lot of women with high status mm. in our villages, which Europeans kind of put the woman down, mm-hmm. lower than the man, could never speak or say their opinions, anything like that. In our way of life, it was total opposite. A lot of our decisions were made by what women said. A lot of our decisions were made by what the clan mother spoke about. Now, a clan mother, she's like the mother of each one of the clans. Usually up in her years, she would not have been a young woman. She had to live life, have the wisdom, and all those things to so know. So for the entire bird clan, there could be thousands of people in the bird clan? And one woman. One, wow. One clan mother. Kind of a That's queen. why I was talking about the bird family. Mm. It's like all of those in that were all family by their clan. So that one woman was chosen by that clan to be their representative. They would go to her just like they would go to their own mom, get information, get wisdom, get told things, what not to do, what to do. So in the council, when it was her turn, she would stand up and speak for her for her clan, what they felt was best for the village. So that would continue on until all seven clan mothers got to speak. This is how... And then the elders would speak, and then the beloved people would speak on the issues they were talking about. So the chief's taking all this information in and see with our people, here's what's different. Even though it's similar to the United States government, the way we run our villages, where do you think they got their ideas? 
I've heard that it might have come from um, indigenous the, people. Yes. I'm not just saying strictly Cherokee. Yes, they I'm said saying, the Iroquois. So the Iroquois Confederacy, also known as the Five Nations, also known as the Hadansia Confederacy. I can't say the word. Mm-hmm. It's a very long word. Mm-hmm. But I've heard that. That yeah. it, the, the idea of how to run the United States might have come from the the way that some of these nations, the way yeah, they the would do Yeah, the ones they come in contact with because mm-hmm. it wasn't, the ones that started forming the governments were just went in one area mm-hmm. of what is North America. Mm-hmm. They were in all different areas on, as they come from the east to the west. Mm-hmm. So they were coming in contact with all these different tribes and they watched how they run their villages. Mm-hmm. Without it being chaos, everybody just doing what they want. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was laws and there were ways to do things because Cherokees had laws way before Europeans were here mm-hmm. that we went by. So when we talk about the clan mothers and speaking, we make decisions because we let the children speak too. Mm. Can you imagine if this country would do that mm. and let the children speak because they speak from their heart. They don't They don't have years of their parents tell them, this is what you need to say. This exactly. is how you should respond, blah, blah, blah. Those children speak from their heart. Mm-hmm. So when those children were allowed to talk about what the issues were, Sometimes those decisions were made by what the children said, not what the adults said. So that's how the villages in that type, like law and council meetings, that's how we kept it from being chaos. Mm. Everybody had rules they had to go by, laws they had to go by. We knew how to treat each other. The word God to which means like a village or a town, they, uh, it means all the people within that area took care of one another. People say the cliche, it takes a village to raise a child. Where do you think that come from? Mm. So many different tribes that I come in contact with, that's the way their villages were run. Everybody had a part in taking care of all the children. Not like today's society where it's just one one family takes mm-hmm. care of their own. You know, you can't even hardly get babysitters. You can't even have in-laws mm. or family to take care of your kids. Mm. With ours, we knew that's everybody's job. Mm is to make sure these children know the laws, know the punishment when they're broken, how to make certain things, how to hunt, how to fish, how to make whatever it is we need for survival. Do you have an example of a, a law, a taboo, in the punishment? Okay, when we were talking about clans, mm-hmm. in my clan, the bird clan, so we're having counsel. And always at the door, the entrance into the council, they always had people standing guard because once council started, anybody else couldn't come in. Okay. These Doors men closed. made sure if somebody tried to come in, that's it. It started, you can't come in here. So there was always guards at the door. So let's say in the bird clan, there was this man and woman who were trying to hide their affection toward each other. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at each other and smiling and doing that intimacy look and all that stuff. So if they're caught, if someone catches them doing that, what do you think their punishment was? Wait, is the problem because they're doing that during council? The problem is they're from the same clan doing that. Oh, you oh you can't have a relationship inside the clan? You have to marry outside your clan into the other six. So that's how you deal with incest and, and stuff like that. Exactly. So what do you think? Oh, my God. I, I have no idea. You want me to really guess? Yeah. Put you on the spot for once. Okay. I think... Um, um, 
Uh, I was going to say something really crazy, like some kind of some kind of mutilation, like a cut or something. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Um, they would make you. I'm going to get really crazy. They'd make you have sex in front of everybody. <laughs> I don't think it'd go to that point. They'd actually take both of them outside the village and kill them. They were put to death. Okay, so what I said is not all that crazy because that's an, that's a hell of a punishment. So that's the law that those children knew at a young age. You cannot flirt or want to be married to one of somebody in your own clan because that's like a woman wanting to marry her brother. Yes. You don't do that. Yes. So when I got married, I married a lady from the deer clan. Mm. So my children are deer clan. Oh, because it goes, the family tree goes to mom. Yeah. So she was deer clan. And so that went, the children are her clan. But uh, that's the thing. A lot of us families here on the boundary, we still go by those those ways. You know, when my son was in school, you know, he was an athlete, basketball player, football, all that. And when girls would come up to him and ask him if he wanted to go to movies or something, the first thing out of his mouth would be, what clan are you? Incredible. Because if they said, you know, their dear clan, he, he'd go, ooh, girl, you're my sister asking me out on a date. Yes. Because I instilled that in him in the young ages that when you marry, you have to marry somebody from another clan. And mm. every clan is represented here on the Koala Boundary, mm. and every clan is represented in Oklahoma. Mm. Yeah. So we still go by many of those old ways. Mm. Yeah. And that's the thing with the with the laws and the and the way we had our government. So everybody in the village we knew what we had to do. Hmm. It was it was it was a good way of life. Now, now something that popped in my head that might seem a little random that when you're talking about how the children would have a voice. Yeah. Um, do you know how dreams? I love so I'm really into this psychologist called Carl, Carl Jung. You might know of him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very interested in the interpretation of dreams. You know, I know many indigenous cultures take dreams extremely seriously. Do you have any ideas? Or my you, uncle. Uh, his name is Ross, uh, was my mom's brother. He was good with dreams. You know, most people will have one dream. They'll come visit Cherokee, and they'll try to find somebody. Who... Dreams are dreams. You have a dream one night, it's just a dream. If you have consecutive dreams, you're in the same place. But different things are happening every time you're in that place. Those mean something. So that's why I tell people, I said, if it's just a dream you had, it's just a dream It has no meaning. Because it might be because you watched a movie earlier that day that was scary. Mm -hmm. Then you have a dream, something scary happens to you, and everybody thinks, well, i got to find out what it meant. Mm -hmm. Not every dream has a meaning. No, there are different kinds of dreams. Yes. There are mundane dreams, personal dreams. There are collective dreams. There are mythological dreams. I've had very few of those in my life. They start happening in succession where they're all connecting. Mm-hmm. Then people that have it from here or from Robbinsville where he lived, when they had those dreams like that, they would go see him. But here's the thing. They just didn't walk up on the door and knock on the door and say, hey, Ross, you know, I had some dreams, man. Can you help me out? No. This is a- You always brought a gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time I used to go, and I still do it today, I'll take up a cardboard box and I'll put pinto beans in mm-hmm. it. If they smoke, carton cigarettes, bread, whatever I think they might could use, coffee. I take a box to them. When I knock on the door and they answer, I'll hand them that box, and they'll invite me in. 
And I'll sit down and I'll say, can I ask a favor? Or I'll just take it to them in respect. I'll come in and sit down just to talk with them. But a lot of times when I do that, it tends to turn into a learning process for me because they start telling me things, things I've never known or things that I've heard about, but they verify it by what they tell me. Mm. So I just always bring them something, you know, for their house, for something to eat or, you know, if they smoke, like I said. So that's our old ways kicking in right there. Whenever we visit somebody, we always give them a gift. Mm. So... That's where a lot of these dreams and stuff, you know, there are people when I was young that could interpret them for you, what it meant. And my Uncle Ross was one of those that could mm. do that. Yeah. Mm. Yep. The Cherokee spiritual life, are there people that are still practicing the worship of the ancestral? Not many. Okay. See, we so have, have many sides people, of that. Have many people become Christian? Yeah. Okay. A lot of our tribe are going to go to different churches, not just Christian. Okay. After this Baptist or all the different branches of religion. Me and a few other families still believe in always. Do you pray to, to the to the ancestral gods? It's not a god. Okay. Well, could you? It's please? not in a male form. That's not, I'm going to put it that way. Well, I didn't in my that. in my language, unetlanun. If I'm praying at the water, when I say unetlanun, that means me, my creator, because that's what English word we use to describe that word I just said. But it means a lot more than that. But it, if it's a ceremony, I would say shkianetlanun, which means everybody's creator. That's there in the ceremony. So unetlanun, our in our way of life means. The, the power that created everything, the creator that put us at Gadua and the animals and the trees and the water and everything in this world, the creator, that higher power. See, the reason I say it's not man or woman is because when I talked about us being put here, everything's equal. Everything's the same. We're the same as squirrel. We're the same as water. We're the same as tree, plant. On and on and on. We're the same. One's not above the other. So if we made that creator a woman, that's wrong. It throws the balance off. If we put it as a man, we know that's not right because in Cherokee men, in the way we believe, we put the woman above us because one of the main reasons is they're life givers. We as men can't do what women do when it brings bringing life into this world. We take part in it to create that life, but the woman nurtures it and creates the miracle of bringing it into this world. So our creator, we can't be above a woman. There's no way. But we're the same. So that's why our unetlana is a power that create everything that's here. That unetlana is who we pray to in times of need or bad or pray. Because when we pray, we if I'm praying at the water, I can do it by myself a thousand times in a day. It don't have to be a certain day. It don't have to be in a building. As long as I got water and earth, I can pray anywhere I'm at. That's why I told people at the bonfire the other night. I said, you're in my church. It's all around. You see all these trees and this ground and that water? This is it. I can pray any time of the week I want. And the way we believe you know, when we pray is that we know what we have to do as a human. We, we, we don't look at each other because of the color of our skin. 
We're human beings. You know, John Trudell put it, you know, he put it in pretty good words. He said, you know, we're not Indian, we're not Native American, we're older than the concept. We are, we are the people. We are human beings. And that makes a lot of sense. It, it goes deep. Because if you look at the history of our people, that was in the United States when the Europeans landed. All the bad things that were done to us were because we were different. If you look at it, that's where it all began. It wasn't the greed that started it. It was because we were different. So when you look at the spiritual part, the ceremonies and how we pray, we always pray for others. I don't never go to the water and pray for a guy that needs, he's put in for another job next week. I don't go to the water to pray for that. If I know a family that's got a young child in the hospital, got an elder up there, or themselves are in there and I know them, they're sick. I've done a lot of praying through this COVID. I went to the water many times. There's a place in Cleveland, Tennessee called Red Clay. There's blue water. The prettiest blue you ever see. It changes colors, but it's blue. And that's our medicine water. I went down there so many times when COVID hit because there were so many families I had to pray for. I lost a lot of cousins, close family, great friends to that disease. But I went to that water and prayed for their families that lost them. So I always, and our people before Europeans always prayed for others. We never pray for ourselves because we believe that's a greedy prayer. I know there's a thousand people out there right now praying for me right now today. There's no need for me to go to water and pray for me. They pray for me. I pray for them. So in a spiritual way, the way we lived, the ceremonies that we still do today, the prayer dances that we still do, the songs we sing in our language, all pray to that creator. It's not a man or a woman. It's a higher power that's a lot more powerful than we are. Is it, um, is it one force that is also in everything? Or... There's many different things when you talk about the way we believe. When I talked about the Nunahi, the spirits of those people that still come back, mm -hmm. still yet now, they're not like in a ghost form, like a mist or a black, you know, black image floating across the wall. Mm. They're just as plain as me and you. Mm. They'll appear. They're just like me sitting here in front of you. You've seen them that way? Yes, I have. Cool. I, do, you, do you have a, a ceremony? Yeah. Wow. Do you have a story you could tell about that? Or are you ready? Well, have? the thing is, is that, you know, things that happen like that, a lot of people that live here and lived here all their lives have seen things like that. Um, some of the ceremonies I've been to, and uh, once I go to my arbor at these uh, grounds that are way back in the mountains when I was young, and I go to my Barclay arbor, and that night or that weekend or that night when we're doing the dances, we start when it's right, starting to get dark. But we'll make it to the grounds, and it's still kind of daylight yet. And there's a fire in the middle with the seven sacred woods that we used when we done ceremonies. And if I went to the bird clan section and sit down, and that night I was the only one from bird clan. All the others, blue, paint, long hair, all of them got 20, 30 people in their arbors. But that night I was the only bird clan that showed up. So as the sun starts going down in that bright, the fire gets brighter, the light, you can see everybody. 
So then when you look back over where I'm sitting, there's 10 of us. But only one from this world, the other nine visiting from the other world. And you can see them as clear as you're looking at me. Yeah, just like looking at you now. And they're wearing, and you're wearing your ancestral clothes, and so are they? Wearing street clothes. You're wearing street clothes. So are they. They're wearing- Because I knew them. Now, if you're talking about those further back that came, no, they'll be wearing the old style. I always wonder that. Do the spirits, when a human dies and whatever goes next, mm-hmm. does it, it, it keeps its clothes. It keeps its clothes. When it, it comes back this to world. this, yeah, no, it, it don't bring them from the other world. It has them what they had in this world. That, that's what I mean. It yeah. like keeps it. But isn't real material? Right. It ain't real. Right. To society. Right. I mean, they're real to me. Okay, let me ask you something now. Uh, now we're going to get kind of into the more, um, well, I don't know what you want to call it, um, whimsical world. So I interviewed a man in West Virginia. His passion is cryptids. And it's, it's myth, like these creatures that science says are not real. He told me the legend of the wampus cat, which is supposedly the way that it's moved through folklore. It's supposedly a Cherokee legend about a young woman who spied on a sacred ritual. She was caught and she was turned into a woman who would be half um, wild cat, half mountain lion. Um, Is this one you've ever heard anything about? I've not heard of her. Or is that kind of like turned into like folklore, American folklore? It's probably folklore. I've never heard of that. I know we have Deer Woman. Could you could you talk about Dear Woman? Partially her legs and all that, or the like the legs of the hind legs of a deer. They have the hoofs and everything, but from her waist up, she's a woman. And actually, what's crazy about that story is that, you know, she, she lures men into the woods, and they never come back out. Um, we had a powwow down here a few years back. I know it's been over 15 years ago. She was at the powwow. And we had a fence. We have a fence that goes all around the powwow grounds down here, or we call it the fairgrounds. She, I don't, one of the women that was in the audience seen her. I mean, from the top up, but she could change her look once she got in the woods. So she, I remember I was on the other side of the circle where they were dancing. Then one of my buddies who was a fancy dancer come around. He said, uh, these women over are talking about this one lady standing out there. And he pointed her out. So what is it? He said, I don't know yet. He said, but there's about, they're starting, them women are starting to gather up. So I walked around behind the stand where they had the MC and all that and went around where all the drum groups were. And I went walked up to where them gathered the women because I knew some of them. I said, what's going on? I said, that woman over there. And they said, don't look at her. But, and I said, I already know who she is. I said, because my buddies pointed her out. I said, no, she's got a long skirt on. It goes all the way to the ground. Because most women that wear the skirts, they it's usually above their shoes. So watch when she moves. 
So whenever she moved and her skirt moved, you didn't see no feet. That was a deer woman. So those women start gradually moving to where she was. And she had been found out by them. And when they started turn to chase her or to grab her, you would have seen how she jumped. She jumped the fence. Went up to the woods. You witnessed this? So what do you think that is? It's a deer woman. In flesh and bone. In flesh and bone. That's what she looks. And the She wouldn't have the skirt or anything on if she was in the wilderness, but that was her. Do you but do you think she was looking for a man? Is it a spirit that takes a body form and comes and interacts with us humans? A deer woman. So you think there's a deer woman that lives. Is Is there a Bigfoot? I don't know. Is there? Just Colum. Is the Cherokee word for Bigfoot? Yeah. Can can I hear a little bit? Yeah. About? The the place in Cullowee, where the uh, Western Carolina University is, there's a, there's a rock over there called Judah Color Rock. Me and Jerry Wolf, the beloved man I spoke of earlier that I worked with at the museum, we were discussing the name. And my mom and dad pronounced that name, and a lot of them are kinfolk and all those that speak Cherokee fluently and been speaking it all their life said that. The name of that rock is Juthgalun, not Judicula. Juthgalun is the giants, the big people, like Bigfoot. That's our name for them. We know they exist. Back before Europeans, they were here. So we call them Juthgalun, the giant people, the big people. And uh, the connection to it, you have to pass uh, Western Carolina University to find that. That's big stone. But the word Cullowee, where the university sits, which actually sits on a village site, Cherokee Village, that whole university is on a, because they're finding artifacts and everything around the buildings. But the word Cullowee, it's not said that way. It said Galunwe. If you look at the word for the giant people, just Galun, Galunwe. Here are those two that are connected. Just Galun, Galun We. Galun We, where the university sits, means the place where the big people live. Judicola or Just Galun, that rock is where they dwell. But, you know, on a funny note, when I was talking to Jerry about it, I said, Judicola. I said, everybody calls it Judicola rock. I said, what do you think about that? Why have you been told that Judicola means? And he got just those smirk on his face like he's getting ready to grin real big. I said, what have you heard? I said, my, my mom told me what they know what it means. <laughs> he said, it means a place to go to piss. It's where the Bigfoot goes to the bathroom? No. The word Judicola. See, if you go over, it's called Judicola Rock. Mm-hmm. Really, it's supposed to be said just Colum, the giant people. Not Judicola. Judicola means a place where you go to peace. Oh, it's so in in the in the bad the translation, way, it's not a bad translation. In it's mis- just a place you go to use the bathroom. Oh, people today call it Judicola Rock. Judicola isn't how it's said. It's said Judicolon, Judicolon Rock, mm-hmm. not Judicola. Judicola, he said, it means place you go to relieve yourself. Mm. 
So, but Galoi means where those they dwell. Do or you or do do you or anyone you know have a Bigfoot experience? I don't know. I've heard them before. I haven't actually seen one yet. But the thing is, is that for some reason, society believes that we're smarter than the animal. You know, you could. Well, I don't think that. But. Well, here's the thing: you could turn the labels around. We're called animal. Are we animal? Are what we, you know of today, when you describe animal, are we animal? Are we an animal? Yeah. I think we're an animal. Yeah. Of course we are. And then you see videos of these animals video and say, look, they're doing things like human. So if you switch the label, they're mm-hmm. doing human things, and we do animal things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, But when you watch that, it's so fascinating and exciting to society to see an animal have the reactions or do things that we do. Mm. What's so big about that? Mm. I don't get it. These animals have been doing this from the time they were they were put on this earth. Mm. Just because it's similar to us, we think it's some big, huge deal. Us as Cherokee have always known that, mm. that animals can do these things. Why do you think in, when they talk to some of our, our healers way back when we were trusting and letting telling all the things spiritually that how we do and what we've seen and how we believe when we see these animals do these things. I mean, when we talk about them speaking to us and in their own ways, you know, those kind of things, it's normal way of what, what society's normal is, I don't know. But to use that word in our way of life before Europeans, yes, those things were normal. And you were saying before we started recording that there was – ritual for when you've taken an animal's life yes. because there's so much reverence. Could yeah. you speak a little bit about those 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 animal? Because I have definitely, through hunting and trapping, I definitely have found that praying, even before the experience, yeah. makes the experience less hard on your like heart, like having to like kill an, an animal. So in a if trap. you wound the animal and you know it's not going to survive, it's actually taking its last breath. That's what really hurts you. With us, if the animal was in that in that state, that its heart was slowly slowing down and it's breathing, its soul can actually and its spirit can hear you even after it's stopped. Because those four things I talk about that's in our bodies, the soul, the spirit, the mind, and the heart, it's in the animal too. So you first give it thanks for what it's going to do for you. You then apologize because you took its life. Plants are the same way. I agree. So once you do that, in our way, we use tobacco, not just any tobacco, not Prince Albert and all that. We have our own type here that some few families grow it. But I've got a lot that's been handed down from different elders to me. And you don't have to have a big handful and spreading it everywhere or across all the animal's body. Just as long as you've got a little bit, that tobacco offering to that animal or that plant is your way of saying and adding to your thank you. You know, in our language, it's a heartfelt thank you. If someone has saved your life and you say thank you, you go, is like a heartfelt means everything you have in your body, the appreciation, 
to thank everything in your soul in a thank you. So you go to that animal that you've taken its life. So the tobacco helps it on its journey when it travels from this world to the next one. So that's how, when, when I hunt, that's how I would do with those animals because it isn't about making you feel better. It's about helping that animal on his journey to that next place mm-hmm. that he goes to. The thing that make, the what makes you feel better is like we used to get me is when I go fishing, you know, and I, I had a man that kind of took my dad's place when my dad passed away. He loved trout. Then he got to the point where he couldn't fish anymore. And I knew other families were the same way. So I go, I caught a lot of fish. I divide it up, take it to each family. And they'll say, well, stick around, eat with us, you know. And I'm like, well, if I got the time, I will. But if I do, to watch them sit there and just smile while they're eating, that fish I caught them, the fish I brought to them, that's what makes you feel good. Mm. When that, the end product of it, that hunt. You hear a lot of hunters say that the most rewarding part is sharing. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of deer hunters that live in Georgia, they where they just swarmed with them. And they're allowed to catch and kill so many, they take the meat, they dress it out, fix it up, take it to homeless shelters. Yep. And that's the thing like that. It, they they got in their heart to take care of other people, and that's what society needs to do. Mm. Instead of at, own a restaurant and throw $10,000 worth of food out at night because you didn't sell it. Mm. Feed those people that can't, mm. don't have jobs or need a hot meal. Take it to the family's houses if you have to instead of just dumping it in the dumpster. Mm. And you're not allowed to get it out of the dumpster because the restaurant won't let you. Mm. And that's the thing about hunting. I've never hunted for sport, mm. ever. What do you mean when you say it, for fun? Yeah, for I don't. Sport. I don't think many people do that. I, I know a lot of when you walk people, in, I, when you. I've walked through the woods and seen deer killed with their head gone, with just the head gone. Yeah, it's probably sitting in some guy's garage or in his living room. I've seen that too, but I think at least most people I know and I listen to, they're they're in this for for sustenance and but for that's a relationship with nature. You wouldn't believe as many people as I meet since I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. I know it has to be over me and people I've come in contact with, hmm. been invited to their homes. I'll see trout, mounted, deer head, animals from Africa. Mm. What's the point? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I've never, as I grew up spiritually and traditional way, when I see things like that, it don't make sense. Mm. You know, when we talk about colonization or whatever label you want to put on us, assimilation. How people complain about the government. You know, I ask those people that's complaining about the, the today's government, I say, how does it feel? You talk about the American dream. We'll never see that. We'll never get to experience that. All indigenous people will not be able to experience that. Now, I see all the things that are still being done to indigenous people. 
I don't know if you've noticed about the boarding schools where they're finding thousands of children buried. I've heard about that. In Canada, now they're finding them in the United States. At first, the government tried to stop it, but they couldn't. Now they're going to all of these boarding schools, and they're using the modern technology, and they're finding skeletons of these young kids, mass graves buried here and there. So as a Gadua man, and the way I was raised, how I look at society today when it comes to God Doogie, helping each other as a, as a country. Society teaches you it's what you have, how you dress, what you drive, what you live in. If you have a lot of those things, then everybody's your friend. Society teaches you need to go to college and graduate and make something out of yourself. The way I look at it, you're somebody when you're born. You don't need college. You don't need a degree. You don't need to be a movie star or any of that. People kill themselves to be athletes for how many years? What did they get from it? Just this piece of metal and recognition because more people know you? That's the part, the assimilation that I speak of. And that's what was forced on us with the boarding school. You can't speak your language no more. Mm. If you do, I'm going to beat you. Mm. If I have to, I'll beat you to death. My mom and dad were in boarding schools, and I know what those bad ones were like mm. through their stories, which they rarely talked about. It ain't the sugar-coated versions that you'll see in these binders on these pages written. Mm. They lived it. They went through it. They survived it. That's the thing I tell people. We're strong people, all indigenous tribes, because we've survived disease. We've survived boarding schools. We've survived attempted genocide. We've survived removal. But we're still here. And our numbers grow every day. Mm. But um, How many people are here on the Koala boundary? Probably about 17,000 enrolled Eastern Band. I know we've got over 250,000 out in Oklahoma easily. Maybe a lot more. And how large is this boundary area? Uh, probably about 60,000 miles or 60,000 acres. 60,000 acres, okay. Most of it's mountain. Okay. Mountains okay. and stuff, yeah. Okay. Um, this, has been, this has been absolutely riveting conversation. I thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, if maybe do it. the very end, I would hate for you to leave and not hear a little bit about the masks. Masks. Yeah. I mean, could you just do like a few <laughs> minutes just talking about the masks? Yeah. I can do a little bit. Um, back before Europeans, when we made masks either out of bees' nests. Really? Um, we used animal hides that had the hair still attached. Uh, we used gourds that we grew in our gardens. Uh, we were growing gourds over 10,000 years ago, but we used them for different things. But we also used them for masks, too. And... Uh, the mask was worn by the lead dancer. According to what the dance was, if it was a bear dance, then the lead dancer would have a uh, some type of mask form like a bear. 
Or if we were doing quail, they would have a mask that looked like a quail's face, just according to what dance we were doing. And uh, these masks were made. But what you see a lot of today, like in our museums and stuff, made out of wood, uh, you wouldn't see those type because the modern tools used on them um, where they're just made for art. The older ones were more rough looking, mm-hmm. you know, and we didn't have all these fancy type of carving knives and all this stuff to make them all even and all that kind of thing. Because some of the artists um, are so good that the mask looks like it's being done by a uh, a robot or something. You know how they can just Machine. make both sides perfect, mm-hmm. equal, everything. Some of these artists are that good that when they do carve a mask, it looks like it ain't been carved by hand, but it has been. So that compared to the old style, before Europeans' influence on anything we done, the masks were more rough looking, but they did still look like the type of dance that we were and going so to do. If you wanted to go into a bear hunt, perhaps there would be a dance with bear dance. the bear, uh, the bear dance. Yeah. So it would be about hunting. We, we do we do them those dances. I want to see that. We used to do the dances with the masks. You know, if mm. we'd done a bear dance or the actual hide. A uh, buddy of mine that dances with our group, he's actually got a hide that he puts on, hmm. and do the he'd be the lead dancer because he's got the bear hide on with the head and everything on it. <sighs> so stuff like that, you know, it's also when those masks are worn, it's to respect the animal. Hmm. You respect the animal that you're going to take its life, mm-hmm. so so it will feed your families in the villages. So it has a lot more meaning than just representing the dances that's being done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. In many aspects, you know, a dance that we might have a mask for might not even be an animal we use in in, in food-wise or survival-wise, but it might be the animal we use the feathers of mm. or things of that nature. So it's a respectful dance to animals that help us live our life in this world. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so um, if people, speaking of dancing, if people want to see you as part of the, can you say the word again? Warriors of Anikadua. Anikadua. Are you still part of that? Yes. So if so, if our people, group are still, our group still travels. We travel all over the United States, up to Canada, been to London, been to Germany, where we're going to go to New Zealand and Italy. Amazing. And Is teach a, just like what I'm teaching you. Know what we talked about today. Mm-hmm. That's why we go and teach other countries because our government don't tell our story. Yeah. That's why groups of different indigenous tribes is now getting groups together to do the same thing we do mm. because you can learn it and know it's truth because mm. each tribe is teaching it to you. Mm. So being able to do that, you know, for that many years and still do it today, uh, you can go to YouTube and, uh, Type in Warriors of Anigadua. Yeah, I've done it. I've watched them. Yeah, and that's what people can do if they want to see what I'm talking about and what we do as a group. And they can go to the the um, Museum of the Cherokee to check yes. out like future yes. events. Yeah. You also do fireside talks. Uh, it's called the Cherokee Bonfire, but if you go to visit Cherokee.com, it'll have all the events and everything going on through the whole rest of this year mm. here on the Koala Boundary. Mm. So that way, if people live close by or if they're coming and want to go do a vacation here, visit Cherokee.com has all the information they need to 
be able to do that and have things to do and learn. Museum, Oakland Latino Village, outdoor drama, the Cherokee bonfire, all those things uh, educate about our, our way of life and our people. This has been incredible and an honor. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming and doing oh, this. Oh, yeah, today. glad to do it. All right. Thank you, brother. All right. Oh, could, how do I say thank you in Cherokee? Uh, you would say ski. Ski? Ski. Like you go skiing uh -huh. with skis. Just put the S-H sound. Ski. Ski. Yeah. Now, in our way of life, from the beginning of our people speaking our language, we never had a word for goodbye. Mm. When when I talk to a crowd of people, I would say, Dana uh, 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 But me just speaking to an individual like you, I would say, in the language that means until we meet or see each other again. Because in our way of beliefs and the way we've seen things is that if I don't meet or see you again in this life, I will see you in the next one. So I say to you, Dada Dawahanya.